Mark chapter 8. This may sound like a very familiar text to you. It seems like a couple of uh, chapters ago we were talking about Jesus feeding thousands. But it's an entirely different text. Because as you remember last week, he has moved, he, uh, Jesus, has moved his disciples into a new territory. Uh, you remember the Syrophoenician woman last week. We're among Gentiles now. And so this is not a Jewish context. It was a Jewish context back in chapter 6. Now in chapter 8, we're in a Gentile setting. How many of you remember the semester test reviews that we had in school, the annual test reviews that we have in school? Remember that? Yeah, anybody? Um, I always loved those because, um, man, they told you exactly what was on the test. But you had to look at the review. It was not that they just taught the information, but you had to review the information and review the information, and then you just, it was a kind of a crapshoot whether you passed the test or not, because oftentimes I didn't look at the review, just being honest with you. We have a chance here in the Gospel of Mark to look at the review. This is going to sound a whole lot like a review of where we've been, and in fact, where we're going. Remember, we've talked about Mark chapter 16, verse 15 before. We talked about the idea where Jesus says, you're going to go out into all the world, all the world, Jesus, not just us Jews, not just the church. Not just people that look like me, act like me, dress like me, talk like me. No, all the world. That means even the Gentiles, which would have struck a strange chord uh, for the Jews. And yet, that's what Jesus said that he'd come to do, is to preach to all the nations. You'll remember that. This will sound a whole lot like a review for you uh, this morning. I want you to note, first of all, as Kim read the text for us, this spiritual blindness, right? This has come up over and over again. It's one of the themes in the Gospel of Mark. Think about spiritual blindness for a second. I heard somebody mention it uh, today um, in our Bible study, and that is sometimes we don't have eyes to see. Sometimes we don't have ears to hear. But it's not these physical ears, right? It's not these physical eyes. It's something spiritual that is right there in front of us, and yet we still miss it. Anybody else? Yeah? I can look back at the end of a day and think, I missed it. That's where God wanted me to say an encouraging word. That's where God wanted me to serve. That's where God wanted me to turn and go the opposite direction. That's when God wanted me to, whatever the case may be. I'm hoping and I'm praying that those times are fewer and far between. The, The closer I get to Christ, the more mature I get as a follower of Jesus Christ. But I've, I've got to be honest with you. Sometimes my flesh wins out, right? And I know your flesh wins out as well. And so when we pray about this spiritual blindness, it's not just a one-time thing, right? You don't hear the gospel one time and think, oh, I, need to, I need to preach about, or I need to think about, or I need to teach about spiritual blindness. Or I need to think about how I hear spiritually, right? You used to, that doesn't come as, as, a, as a new believer. That's something totally foreign to you. But the more we grow, the more we have to understand that that spiritual versus flesh tension that happens in our life is a constant battle. And it's going to be a constant battle until we're completely restored. That doesn't sound like good news, does it? It's going to be a constant battle to pray for spiritual eyes to see, for spiritual ears to hear. Another word that we use for that is what? It's discernment. How many of you more discerning? than you were six months ago, a year ago, five years ago. If you've never thought about it, maybe you ought to think about it. Because if we're growing, if we're a babe in Christ when we first come to Jesus, 
and we're growing up as we should be, if we're off the milk and onto the meat, hopefully we're more discerning. Hopefully we can see with those spiritual eyes. Hopefully we can hear with those spiritual ears. Did you notice this is not just the religious people here? It's not just the religious people who have this blindness, right? It's the disciples. It's the closest followers, even Peter, James, and John. Even Judas. They just don't get it. And we're quick to point our fingers at them, church, and say they just don't get it. But we never look in the mirror and say, man, I'm just as blind as they are. Or I'm just as deaf as they are when God speaks. Spiritual blindness is alive and well. It's not just the Pharisees. It's not just the disciples. Those in the inner circle of Jesus. There are also people in the church. Big C. There are also people in the church that are spiritually blind. There are also people in the church that are spiritually deaf. In other words, that text is not just from Isaiah for 700 years prior to Jesus Christ. It's that as long as we have that tension, there's always going to be that struggle. Fair enough? I want to focus more uh, of our attention down in verse 13, 14, uh, and following. Look at what it says. And back, matter of fact, let's look back at verse 11. The Pharisees, it says, came to test Jesus, or to question Jesus. To test him, they asked for a sign from heaven. Now, unless you're Larry Bergen and you know Greek, uh, this idea of testing is about confrontation. In other words, it's not about just show us the, show us the truth, give us the review, Jesus. Tell, tell us what you've seen, what you've showed us before. Tell, tell us what it's all about, Jesus. It's not about that for them. It's a, it's a confrontational kind of thing, right? In other words, they show up looking for a fight. And Jesus is not willing to give them a fight. Notice what it says. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. Their motivation is to test him, and they asked him for a sign from heaven. Now, that would not be, a sign from heaven would not be a problem in that we see that over and over throughout the Gospels, especially in Matthew, and even in John, he talks about seven signs in regards to the miracles. But here we have, in this particular Gospel, in Mark, where their motivation is very clear. They're about confrontation. They're about testing Jesus. They want to rebuke him. That's what a better translation of that Greek term is. They want to rebuke him. They want to say, prove it to us, Jesus. Give us something better. And notice what happens. It says he sighed deeply. Have you ever done that with your kids? Jackie, have you ever done that with your kids? I just saw you do that with your kids on the way out. And I'm not pointing at you. We've all done that, right? We've all done And how many times does God do that with us? How many times when we're spiritually blind, when we just don't get it, or when we're supposed to hear something from God, if He's been telling us over and over and over again this same message and we don't get it, does God go, oh, for me, Ron mentioned the, the phrase that I love this morning in Bible study, this idea comes from Peter where he says he's long-suffering. He's not just patient with me. He's long-suffering. Anybody else? I need a God who is long, long, long-suffering. I need a gracious, I need a gracious God. But notice he's not, he's not willing to give them another sign. He's, he's shown them everything that he's going to show them. And look what he said, look what it says, verse 12. He sighed deeply and why does this generation, why does this people, why do these people, why do these people who lack faith, why do they continue to ask for proof? So I tell you, no sign will be given to it. 
This is nothing new in Scripture, if you're aware of your Scripture. You know, this happens over and over and over again. God gives us enough to believe based upon faith. We'll come back to that concept here in a second. God gives us enough to believe based upon our faith. In other words, God does not have to prove anything, does He? We see, through, we see things throughout natural theology. We see things in our world. We see things uh, as God creates, as God paints this beautiful picture for us. I mean, He's already shown us. I, I mentioned to you the psalmist last week where it says, what is man that you're mindful of and the things that you put into place? What is, what is this lowly being that you're mindful of him and not that you're mindful of him that you care for him? You're going to do great things for him. We're even created in God's, in God's image. He's he showed us everything. He's told us everything we need to know. The problem is we're still looking for proof. We're no different than the Pharisees. We're no different than the disciples from time to time. We demand something from God, don't we? God forgive us. So he said they left him and they went back into the boat and crossed to the other side. They go back to the Jewish nation for a second. And notice he uses this as a teaching opportunity. Verse 14 says, the disciples had forgotten to bring bread except one loaf they had with them in the boat. And Jesus, aware of their anxiety, cautions them and says, be careful, watch out. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. That's an interesting text, or interesting phrase, isn't it? Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. We know who the Pharisees are, right? They're religious, religious people, they're, they're law-abiding citizens. They follow the 613 laws. They're, they're the ones that they, they toe the mark when it comes to religion. And Jesus, God in the flesh, says, watch out for those people. And it's not just about those people, it's about what they do. You know what yeast does, right? When you activate yeast, what does it do? It rises. And it permeates the whole dough. And so when Jesus warns them about the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod, what's he saying? We talked about this last week. You guys remember this, the term hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is saying one thing and doing another. We've been accused, the church, the big C, has been accused of being a bunch of hypocrites. I don't want to go join those hypocrites down at the church. You've ever heard that before? I've heard that before. I don't want to join those, there's a bunch of hypocrites down at the church. You know why? Because all too often it's true. We say we believe something and yet we do something totally opposite. Now you may be thinking, well, not me. I'm really devoted. I'm really committed. I'm, I'm here every Sunday. Uh, when, they have a, when they have a Bible study, I'm, I'm the first one in line, right? Is that true? Do none of us struggle with hypocrisy? Again, I think it's this struggle, this tension between flesh and spirit. We're always going to struggle with this idea of at least the danger of hypocrisy. Would you hold your thumb there in Mark chapter 8 and turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians. Look at 1 Corinthians, and let's look at chapter 5. Glenn just read a text for us about the Lord's Supper, and Paul is, is dealing with a struggling church. And he's giving them directions on how they should live, and not only how they should live, but how they should worship. In other words, there's a difference between gathering on a Sunday and being a, a church country club, or being the actual ecclesia, the called out ones. So 1 Corinthians, the, the church in Corinth is a mess. And Paul, who's writing from a distance, is trying to do everything he can to encourage this church in Corinth. And he finds out there's problems in the church. 
And here's the problem. Chapter 6. Or chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you. And the kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Is that a problem? Um, We're on the same page? And you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out your fellowship to the man who has been doing this? What? Paul, that sounds pretty extreme. For my part, even though I'm not there physically, I'm with you in spirit, he says, as one who is present with you in this way. I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who's been doing this. Wow, powerful words, Paul. So when you're assembled, church, and I'm with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, in other words, the Holy Spirit's here. This is not a church, it's not a country club. It's the church. It's the ecclesia. We're supposed to be different than the rest of the world. This flies in the face of our society today, does it not? I mean, God's about love, is He not? Love, 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 rainbows and butterflies, and love, love, love. But God's also a holy God. And God has expectations. So when you're assembled and I'm with you in spirit, verse 4, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Why, Paul? Because he's a hypocrite. Because he says one thing and does another. Because he claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ, but his actions say otherwise. Hand this brother over to Satan. This guy's a part of the church. Hand this brother over to Satan. Why? So that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Man, accountability is so foreign. Listen, accountability is so foreign in our churches today. Discipline is non-existent in our churches today. Do you understand what I'm saying? I know this is not a popular message, but there are hypocrites in the church. We say we're going to do something. We say we're for something. We say we're followers of Jesus Christ, and yet we do something totally opposite. Not so many amens anymore, right? This is not just a problem with sexual sin. That's the example that Paul uses for the church here in Corinth. But it's much more than that. How can you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ if you're still caught in the pattern of sin? What does 1 John say about that? Anybody? 1 John says if you continue to sin, if there's this constant... It's not that we're going to be not going to be sinners. I'm still a sinner. It's just this motivation to sin has ceased when I meet Jesus. So once we meet Jesus, once we understand His righteousness is now our righteousness, the things that I used to do, I don't do anymore. It changes my motivation. When I do sin, I'm quick to repent. I'm quick to get back to where I need to be. But if you just continue down this path and you think that you know Bonhoeffer, I've mentioned this several times before, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it's cheap grace. If you just continue down this path, the same old path, saying, well, God's going to forgive me. God's going to forgive me. God's a gracious God. I'm, gra- I'm glad we have a gracious God. I'm, I'm glad we have a loving God. I, God's going to forgive me. God's going to forgive me. And you keep down, going this, this same path. Could be sexual immorality. That's, that's a sin. Could be gambling. That's a, that's a sin. It could be adultery. That's a sin. It could be any sin that you can imagine. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's not just sexual sin, church. And yet there are hypocrites in our churches, in our church, big C, 
today saying one thing and doing another. Nothing new. So let me ask you, are you a hypocrite? Let's go back at Old Testament now. Look back at Joshua chapter 7. You guys know the text, right? Joshua chapter 7. Israelites were winning battle after battle after battle. And then all of a sudden everything went south. And they couldn't win anything. Our modern day world would say they couldn't fight themselves out of a paper bag. So what's the problem? Well, there's this guy named Achan. You guys know the story of Achan? Verse 2, now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the the east of Bethel. And he told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it. Don't worry the whole army, for only a few people live there. So about three thousand went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about thirty-six of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. And so Joshua tears his clothes. He falls face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there until evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon me, Lord. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other peoples of the country will hear about this. They will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? And the Lord said to Joshua, listen. The Lord says to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down in your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. They are sinners. They're hypocrites. That's why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they've been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Do you hear what he's saying? Get rid of the evil. Discipline? Yes. Accountability? Yes. Does the yeast permeate the whole dough? Jesus is pretty clear about that. He goes on to say, Go consecrate the people. Tell them, Consecrate yourselves and prepare in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. Now you guys know the story, right? Achan comes, and finally he's called out in verse 18, 19. My son, give glory to the Lord, Joshua said to Achan, the glory of the God of Israel, and honor him. Tell me what you've done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan replied, it's true. I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I've done. When I saw the plunder, a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, maybe he wanted to give this in the offering the next Sunday. Don't we rationalize our sin? Don't we rationalize our sin? Don't we do something knowing that it's not the right thing to do? and expect God to bless us for whatever we do? Yes, we do that. So Achan says, I coveted them and I took them. They were hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent. There it was, hidden in his tent with silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, they brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites, spread them out before the Lord. And Joshua, listen, Joshua together with all Israel took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, all that he had to the valley of Achor. What is going to happen? Dun, dun, dun. Joshua said, Why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all the Israel stoned him. And after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. 
Over Achan they heaped a large pile. Now I'm not condoning you going out and stoning people. What I am telling you is God's plan has been God's plan from day one. God cannot, God will not coexist with evil. God will not bless us if there is hypocrisy in the camp. Do you understand what I'm saying? Whether it's 1 Corinthians, the immoral brother, whether it's a thief, here in Joshua chapter 7, Jesus makes it clear that sin penetrates holiness. Sin penetrates holiness. Leviticus 11.44, be holy. Be, be set apart. Why? Because God is set apart. Because God is the one true God. Peter records the, the same text. Be, be holy, because I am holy. In other words, that's not just an Old Testament command. That's a command throughout Scripture. And every time we see, every time we see sin permeating the camp, that's exactly what Jesus is saying, is He not? Look out. Beware. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They look the part. They act the part. They're followers of 613 laws. And Jesus will call them whitewashed tombs in another text. You look good on the outside, but you're dead inside. Well, they discussed this with one another, and they said, this is Mark 8, it's because we have no bread. <laughs> have you ever been, not that we're any more spiritual than they were, but I think that God gives us, God gives us some revelation as New Testament believers. What I mean by that is God shows us things that are ancestors, our brothers and sisters didn't know. We're, we're, we're highly privileged. I hope you understand that. I mean, they, they didn't have this. And every time I think about that, I think of verse 16 where it says, they discussed this one with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. Man, if that's not a discouraging text, they still have no spiritual eyes. They still have no spiritual ears. And Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? They were all there when Jesus fed thousands of people among the Jews. A couple of chapters ago, they were all there when they thought they had limits on God, as we talked about last week. They thought that Jesus wouldn't do it here in a desolate place. That's why that word is there. It's a desolate place. It's a place where you're not going to find a whole lot of food. And in fact, they didn't find a whole lot of food. But look what Jesus did. They still can't see. They still can't hear. And Jesus, you know, when it says before in this text that he has compassion on the Gentiles, don't you know, don't you know, don't you know that he had compassion on his closest followers because they still can't hear and they still can't see? Do you still not see or don't, don't you understand? Are your hearts still hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see? Do you have ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many basketfuls did you pick up? Twelve, they said. Once for each of the tribes of Judah, as we've talked about, for the twelve Jewish tribes. When I broke the seven loaves for the four thousand, the Gentiles, how many did you pick up? Seven, they answered. There's some significance to the number seven. And he still had compassion on them because he says, they still don't understand. They were focused on the bread. They were focused on the bread and Jesus wanted them to focus on Jesus. Let me ask you a question this morning as we get ready to close. There are distraction after distraction after distraction in our world today. In other words, if you think about this text, 
and you think their distraction was the bread, let me ask you, what's your bread? What's your distraction? What keeps you away? What keeps you away from Jesus? A closer walk with Jesus. We just we just sang those prayers a few minutes ago. Being closer to God, being closer to Jesus, right? Being that should be all of our prayers. And yet we leave this place and we'll forget about everything we've done that quick. Because we're on to our life, we're on to our jobs tomorrow, we're on to our struggles with our family members, we're on to whatever curveballs life throws at us. Why is it that we're so quick to forget? There's distraction after distraction after distraction in our world. Is there not? And that's exactly what the enemy's ploy is. If he can distract us away from Jesus, there's a reason that Jesus, that Paul would say later on, keep your eye on the finish line. Keep your eye on the finish line. Keep your eye on the finish line. Stay focused. Because if you're not watching that finish line, and you're looking over here, or you're looking over here, I've said it many times, I have spiritual ADD. I have spiritual attention deficit disorder. And guess what? You do as well. You do as well. So let me ask you to consider as we review, in a lot of ways, what we've already talked about in Mark, what is it that distracts you? What is it that keeps you away from being completely devoted to Jesus Christ? What is it that keeps you away from not only praying for spiritual eyes and spiritual ears, but you'll see some progress as you grow from a babe in Christ to becoming more and more and more like Jesus. You know what will happen? It's not that you just receive salvation. It's this maturity thing happens and you'll begin to see people in different ways. You'll begin to see God and the things that God's doing around you. You'll hear that small, still voice in clearer ways. You'll be able to encourage those around you. But the problem is, it's often too... We have that tension going on, don't we? All too often, church, we're focused on the distraction rather than Jesus. All too often we're allowing the flesh to win rather than the Spirit. All too often God is giving us a sigh. Let me pray for you this morning. Father, I pray that as we, as we are a broken people, as we are a, a broken community, as we are a broken society in a broken world, um, that You still are God, that You still are faithful, that what You promised in the past, uh, You will do today, and You will even do in the future. Father, I pray for spiritual eyes to see. And I pray for spiritual ears to hear that small, still voice. God, where there's distractions, that You allow us to recognize those things as distractions. I'm just thinking right now of Peter having to be told, get behind me, Satan. The one, who just, the one who just has said that Jesus is the Christ has a better idea, has a better plan for Jesus. And Jesus rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan, because his motives are all wrong, because he's so distracted by what he wants rather than by what Jesus and what you want. And we are that way as well, God. I pray that You're gracious. I pray that You're continuing to be hospitable to us, continuing to be loving to us, continuing to be forgiving for us. But I also ask that You remind us that You are a holy God. You are a faithful God. 
You are a God with expectations. And God forbid that we claim to be the church and we're just a bunch of hypocrites. And we're just a bunch of people who gather on a Sunday for an hour, an hour and a half, and we check somewhere on our piece of paper or somewhere in our mind and we call it good. God forgive us. Help us to be the church. And we'll give you the honor and we'll give you the glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.